Welcome to the Afghanistan Project podcast. I'm Beth Bailey, and today I'm excited to welcome Parwani, a former colonel in the Afghan National Army's Special Forces. Colonel Parwani was the Director of Intelligence within the ANSF's Joint Special Operations Command leading up to the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. He arrived in the U.S. in August of 2021, and he found his calling when he joined the Afghanistan United Front, or AUF, an effort led by former General Sami Sadat. The AUF hopes to use its political, civil, and military fronts to present an alternative government that could unseat the Taliban. Uh, Colonel Parwani, it's so great to have you here today to share your really emotional and very important story of what you've been through in the last two years. So thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Ms. Bailey. Thank you for having me here. It is my pleasure. I'd love to start by asking about when you joined the Afghan military and what inspired your decision to be part of that effort. So I would like to start that uh, my father was a, my late father was a colonel with the Afghan army. And also the situation back then in Afghanistan when I freshly graduated from high school, the situation was really worse in Afghanistan. We had intensive fighting all over the country, like in the north, south, east, west. And that is back 2012. So I decided to join the Afghan army to follow the footsteps of my father and serve my country. And did you immediately join the special forces or what was that process like? So after going to school in uh, military school in Kabul, then uh, graduating from, from military school, I joined the military intelligence. So I became an intelligence officer. Then after coming to the United States and going to school and going back to Afghanistan, I joined the special forces. So when you were here, in the US for schooling. Can you tell me what and where you studied and how long you were here and how you felt about the US when you were here? I came to the United States back in 2014. Uh, I went to school in Texas, San Antonio, that I call Texas and San Antonio my second house. I have lots of friends there and uh, after that, I went to Fort Huachuca, Arizona for the military intelligence training. And I spent a year in the U.S. back then. What was it like for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it a big change from growing up in Afghanistan? It was totally different for me because the culture is different, the food, the people. You're gonna, uh, when I came at the first, I saw like different people like, especially I have a, uh, I had a cultural shock the first time when I came to the airport in Dallas. So that was the first time I, I was seeing uh, women like walking with uh, like not that much clothes on her. So that was a cultural shock because it's in, uh, Afghanistan, the women and the girls were covering their bodies. And the first thing I saw at the airport was this lady with less clothes on her. And that was a cultural shock. Then I really liked it. I enjoyed the food. I found friends. 
Like I was going out with my friends all the time when I was in Texas. But unfortunately, when I went to Arizona for Huachuca, that I was saying when I was talking to my friends, I was like, hey, I'm here in Hellman at the United States because of the place that we were in, in Huachuca City. So it was like, look like, like Afghanistan. So I liked it, but we don't had much to do, but we had lots of, uh, I had to study a lot because first of all, English was my second language. Then I was studying with uh, 52 American second or second lieutenants who were freshly graduated from the West Point or ROTC and other uh, training centers that they came there. So I had to catch up with them because the class were built for these uh, American officers and I had to catch up with them. And luckily I came at the top 10 of my class by then when we were graduating. So I was busy with the studying when I went to Fort Huachuca. That's really incredible. Um, that's a big achievement. Uh, when you came back, so I imagine it's 2015, 2016, when you returned to Afghanistan, yeah. what was the fighting like when you arrived? So the fighting had increased. The unit that I was a part of it in Kabul was attacked in 2014. Uh, the place that I was working it's called Sang. It was in PD8 of Kabul, and the Taliban tried to dis destroy or ex explode that with a car bomb that caused the casualty of 400 people were injured on the attack in that uh, uh, our HQ in PD8 of Kabul. So the fighting was intensive uh, all around the country because the responsibilities, the security responsibilities from NATO was transferred to the Afghan security forces and the Taliban were pushing and trying to attack and take control of some district centers and uh, run over some CPs. Wow. Uh, so you were in Kabul when you came back. How long were you there? And, and what was it like as things progressed and we got more towards the Doha agreement being signed. So after 2014, the, the election in 2014, the Afghans were, uh, uh, the Afghan politicians were divided into two parts. There was two parties, one government. So now you have two people deciding what to do and what not to do. So it, if the president was saying that we're gonna do this, then the other person who was sitting beside him was like, no, we are not gonna do this. So we were divided. At the same time, the Taliban start, uh, used this opportunity to start their intense, their attacks, to gain some control of some uh, district centers, CPs and uh, uh, even they took control of some district centers within that time. So going forward from the 2015, when I went to Kabul, the Tal I remember that the Taliban took control of uh, Kunduz province at the north. 
then they took control of Ghazni province. So the fighting was increased every day. We were seeing the Taliban attacking more and more, and the attacks increased. And at the same, so by the time, you know, you and I spoke about this the other day, and I, I definitely want listeners to hear this story, we fast forward to when the Doha agreement gets signed. And at this point, you're, you were operating out of the combined situational awareness room. And I'd love you to talk, talk about what that meant, what that work specifically entailed. But you were over, overseeing airstrikes in 2019. And I'd love for listeners to hear about that experience and particularly how the number of U.S. airstrikes shifted so dramatically from when you were first there until the following year after the Doha agreement was signed and why that whole story is so important. Yeah, uh, so I want to tell you what this CSAR was, mm -hmm. how we started the CSAR. Back in 2019, when uh, uh, Minister Khaled, who became the Minister of Defense, General Sami Sadat, my boss, uh, he became the, the military advisor for the Minister of Defense. And he, with General Miller, the, who was the NATO commander back then, they built this initiative that let's bring all these capabilities into under one room so we can, for the first time in the 20 years of Afghans and NATO forces, this was this initiative was the first initiative that Afghans and Americans were sitting together in one room, having all these uh, aircraft flying over the country. And for the first time, the Americans were listening for the Afghans providing intelligence and they were actioning based on those intelligence. So if I provide them any intelligence that, hey, we have an intelligence that the Taliban are gathered here and they want to attack this specific city. So we, they were listening to us. They were going to provide support and aircraft over there to strike. So we were doing uh, airstrikes over there. We were doing uh, air support for the, we were providing air support for the Afghan Special Forces during the operations. And we were doing crisis response whenever we had a crisis going on over the country. So I can recall the number of the airstrike we conducted in 2019. We conducted over 7,243 airstrikes, only U.S. airstrikes. We had Afghan airstrikes as well. That was that we cannot compare the numbers because we had a small air force that we could we were not able to conduct this much airstrikes comparing to the airstrikes that were conducted by the uh, American aircrafts. And we were able to take control of 12 district centers that were controlled by Taliban with the help of the CSAR. And also the, this led us to the, this effort led the Taliban to come to the negotiation. And this brings the Taliban to the negotiation because the U.S. were, pro, were striking on the Taliban every night, like we had over 20 aircraft flying over the country. 
and the Taliban, wherever they were attacking, they were getting shot. Wow. So that's what brought them to the negotiating table for Doha, is what you're saying. And so, yes. So, uh, as I said, like the Taliban had lots of casualties and lost, like mm-hmm. over 27,000 Taliban were killed. And the Taliban were decreasing, their numbers were decreasing, and the airstrikes were increasing every day. The number of attacks that the Taliban were conducting, it came to like 30% lower in 2019. If the Taliban were attacking, like, were conducting 75 to 80 attacks before this CSR, I like, when we start the CSR, within the first three months, the number of attacks came to like 25 to 30 attacks per night. Wow. And then DOA happens. And yeah. can you talk about how that changed things in the CSR? Yes. When the DOHA agreement signed, first of all, so before that, we had this like 20 aircraft and we had a general setting with us. Now you have three aircrafts within the country and you have a major or a captain sitting here with you. And the number of attacks has increased. It is doubled right now. Now, if you had like uh, doubled or tripled, like we had 30 to 35 to 40 attacks in uh, 2019 now this number has increased to 170 to 200 attacks per night all over the country mm-hmm. comparing the 2019 that all those aircrafts we had now we have these like three or two aircrafts or four that are not capable of providing that much support for our or to respond for the crisis that we are facing the Taliban had become brutal. So after 20, after the Doha's agreement, we were called to give peace a chance for this. They told us to be an active defense. I, as an officer, I never find a good definition for an active defense. What is an active defense? I still don't know. So you can see your enemy walking in front of you and you have been told that, hey, give peace a chance, let the Taliban do whatever they want to do, but you don't have to do anything because we want to give them a chance for a peace. Taliban uses this opportunity, first of all, to cut all the supply routes of our CPs all around the country, our bases, our CPs. They try to overrun the small CPs, cut the supply routes for the for the bases and surround them. And they did this. So there's one incident you told me about in Helmand in March of 2020 uh, with these new rules of engagement. And it really showed you, I think, how little support you were going to get from the U.S. in the future. Can you tell listeners about how that event went down? I believe that was my worst experience working with the CSAR for over 15 months. That was my worst. We had seen a lot. 
nights we lost so many of our bodies, but we never heard such a words from our counterpart or our American body. So in March of 2020, uh, I received a call. It was around 9, 9.30 at the night. I received a call from the 215 course talk that they told me that one of our CPs were under attack in Kajiki district of Helmand. So the, he passed me the grade for this uh, checkpoint. Then uh, uh, I passed it to my American counterpart. We Luckily, we had an aircraft flying nearby, so we shipped the aircraft over there. It took us like 15 to 18 minutes to be on that CP. We saw that there is a fire coming out of the CP, the location that we had the grade for. So this fire is coming out of the CP. As soon as we got closer and we have good visual on the CP, we saw the Taliban fighters are coming out of the CP from two directions. And I told my American buddy like, hey, brother, these are the Taliban. We have to strike them. I can recall the words that he told me, like he told me like, Parwani, they are not active danger anymore when we are not going to strike them. I was like, what does an active danger mean? There is no one that they can pose a danger to. They killed the soldiers. They put fire on the CP and they took all these equipments out of the CP. And the dead bodies are burned and we can see it. If you don't want to strike, please keep this, uh, please close this uh, screen. I don't want to watch it. I'm not here in a theater sitting and watching a movie. I'm here to support those guys in the ground. And you're telling me that these Taliban are not an active danger. I am angry with you because there is no one left to be in danger. They killed these soldiers. They took their weapons. That had to be so disappointing. And I think it's important for listeners to understand too what the Doha agreement said. And from my understanding, it said that the Taliban could not attack U.S. forces. But there was no restriction on what they could do against Afghan forces, was there? I believe there was, okay. but the first thing that the, they said in the Doha's agreement, and after the Doha's agreement, Taliban never attacked the U.S. forces. Right. From the January 2020 until August 2021, there was no reports of an incident or attack on an American base or CP, even a soldier. But... They, they had told them that the, we are going to defend the Afghan forces if you attack the bigger cities, like provinces, like district centers, and also we're going to strike. So one more thing to be mentioned here. We were asking civilians to give us permission, not us, but my counterparts, American counterparts, we're asking the civilians to give us permission to strike. We were asking Khalizo to give us permission if he can strike. Why was that? Well, I mean, because Khalil Zad was... I was part of the rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. 
like politicians interfering the military and asking military what to do and what to not do. So like in 2021 and 2022, the number of the Taliban's attack increased like I can say, I can tell you the number of attacks that were conducted from an 11 month of 2020. The Taliban conducted 48,600 attacks on the Afghans, on the Afghan security forces. That include assassinations, that include car bombing, that include uh, massive attacks on the CPs and bases. And at that time, they started to to take more control, although that seemed to, to really happen up towards the end of the U.S.'s presence in Afghanistan, where those those areas started to come under control. And, and by that point, uh, flashing forward, you were in Helmand in the like summer, late spring of 2021. And can you talk about what you were doing? in Helmand at the time and how you were preparing for the U.S. to leave the country or when you knew that the U.S. was going to leave the country? So I find out that after the Doha's agreement that the U.S. was going to leave, and I believe, and we all believe, believe that the Americans were one day are going to leave the country. So we could see every day, like after the Doha's agreement, all the sh supply shipments were cut. We did not have, like, we did not receive the shipments of the ammunition, the guided pro uh, rockets for our AC-28 aircraft, the bombs for our A-29 aircraft. All these things were stopped. We never received any shipments. So I, I remember on the August 6th when we were, um, when, the first province, I believe it was August 6th or 7th, uh, 2021, when Nimbus was uh, fall down, the first province, we only had one guided rocket in Afghanistan, within Afghanistan, with the Air Force, only one, one rocket. And we shot that in Nimbus when the Taliban were entering the governor's office. So we only had one rocket. So this... After the deal, we lost the shipments and the staff. Then we could see the increase of the Taliban's attack. So it was uh, the beginning of 2021 when General Sami Sadat became the core commander for the 215. And uh, I want to help him with the 215. So I was assigned as the J2 director of the JSOC. Then I was, I got another order to go to Hellman to est establish a targeting team, a mobile targeting team. So I went to Hellman and I start helping General Sami Sadat moving forward. The Taliban first, they increased their attacks on Hellman because Hellman is a 10% of Afghanistan land. They, have, they produce 45% of the narcotic for the world. And that was the means of the Taliban support. They were 
selling and getting money from the narcotech to fight, to buy ammo and weapons to attack on us. So the Taliban focused on Lashkargal city or Elman province, and they wanted to overrun the Helmand. So we use this opportunity and we start defend, defending the city. And we fought with the Taliban for over four months. They contacted several attacks on the Helmand. But we were defending. You can see that you can see that on the retrograde, the documentary filmed by the National Geography that follows General Sami Sadat. You can see how hard we were fighting. There was days that we had like five car bombs on our guys. Five car bombs in 45 minutes in a row in Lashkargal city. But we were still defending and we were still fighting. The Taliban lost like so many people. So for not losing their other uh, fighters, so they were burying these uh, fighters under the sand in the desert. So when it was windy, the bodies, the dead bodies were coming up and and the Taliban were telling to their other fighters that, hey, your body is in the front line fighting and he is still okay. And you know, when they were asking why he is not calling or talking, they were saying like, hey, we cut the telephone lines there because for them not to be found by us. Wow. So they didn't want anyone to know that they were losing people. They, no, because of the morale issue, would that yeah, be a problem? Yeah, the moral yeah. issue of their personal. They were not. They were not telling their guys that hey, this guy is dead, or they, even they were not telling their, the family members of their fighters that these fighters are are died, and they were not handing over their dead bodies to them. Wow, that's. Uh, I'm not surprised. The Taliban are often very deceptive, but I had not heard that before. It, so this was an intense period of fighting and, and when did it cease? When did the fighting stop and you realized that Helmand was in Taliban control fully? It was uh, the night of uh, 12th of August and I was the control, I was the, I was uh, leading the operations and I was at the talk uh, when we heard that the Taliban has uh, sent a new unit to <laughs> break the prison in the in the Lashkarga city. And I was following this unit. We find out that this unit was they arrived nearby to our to this prison. So this is the time where we are almost done with uh, Kandahar. Orizgan is gone. Nimrod is gone, uh, Fra is gone, Hor is gone, Erot is gone, and uh, every surrounding area of Helmand is gone. It's controlled by Taliban right now. And all these fighters are focusing to come to Lashkarga. Mm -hmm to take control of Lashkargah. So this raid unit came from uh, north of Helmand and they are told that they are going to overrun the prison of Lashkargah. 
So they are told that they had promised that they're going to overrun the prison of Lashkargah. And the Taliban conducted so many attacks on this prison. Like every other day, they were attacking this prison and they were using car bomb to break this prison. And we had almost about 270 prisoners in the prison. So they were trying to take control of the prison. So, and they were attacking, we had old like six locations in the Lashkargah city when the Taliban conducted this massive attack of 4,000 people coming to the city at the same time from different directions, like walking into the city and we were fighting with them. So we could uh, hold the six strategic locations in the city. Then uh, one of those locations was this prison that was in a stronghold for us and we had to keep it and fight with the Taliban. So this uh, morning of 13, uh, one of my friends from the over the horizon, he sent me a text message through WhatsApp and he asked me like, he sent me a, a, a grave location he need to ask me like hey can you confirm if these are friendly or enemy forces as soon as i checked this grade i it was like three meters uh, east of the prison and i confirm uh, i confirmed that these were taliban and i told this intelligence I, and i already shared this intelligence report with my friends at uh, over the horizon in qatar that, hey, this is what the Taliban planning. And I told them, like, hey, these are the guys. You found it, and these are the guys. It's a group of 60. You might see more people coming out of these houses. They have two cars which are full of explosives. First, they want to attack with these car bombs. Then after that, a massive attack going in to get all these prisoners out and killing my guys. So we were able to disrupt this movement and this attack and uh, unfortunately the two nights before our supplies were like running out and we could not get supplies because the Taliban had found the anti-aircraft uh, weapons and we didn't want any of our aircraft to get shot this is why General Sami told the pilots to not fly into the Lashkargah because the Taliban were shooting the aircraft and we didn't want any of our aircrafts or the crews to die uh, while bringing the supplies for us. And then it was August 13 that we find that we are not going to be able to continue because General Sami was assigned as the core commander for the special forces and he had to go to the Kabul and he stayed in Lashkargah for a week, although he was already assigned as the commander for the uh, Inisoc. And so the 13th is when everyone transferred from Helmand and what was the next step then? Not from Helmand, not all of us. Okay. Like, we had the core and the 215 core, which was in Shorab, is 
were there for until August the 18th. Okay. They never, uh, they were, they stayed there until August 13th. We only left the Lashkarga city to come to the court. So our guys were transferred. Then we came to Kabul. While flying to Kabul on the 9th of uh, 14th of August, we find out through Twitter that General Sami was appointed as the commander of the Kabul security forces. So that we find it through Twitter. We find out that, hey, General Sami was appointed uh, as the commander of the Kabul security. When we came to the Kabul, it was like midnight when, when we arrived to Kabul and then we went to our HQ. And it's, from a military perspective, it is really hard to come from a war zone, not rest. Then you have to get another responsibility of uh, defending a city while there is like different units. You have generals. You have the Minister of Defense, you have the Cox or Chief of Staff for the Army, then you have the Ministry of Interior in the Kabul, you have the Director of Intelligence, and all the units which are in Kabul are under any of these guys' control, and you have more than 30,000 uh, soldiers or fighters in the Kabul security forces, and it is really hard to bring them all under one uh, roof and give them, like, control them from one hand. You know, it is really hard. And that was what we were facing. Like, we were calling, like, hey, we have a meeting. You have to come here. Then, like, this four-star general, like, hey, I'm a four-star general. I cannot go to a two- or three-star general, you know? So this is what happened that we could not make like this joint effort to control the city. On the August 15, uh, the night of August 14, uh, when we came to Kabul, we we were we find out that the, I went directly to the talk and we find out that Kundas was or the our security forces left Kundas at the north, and Tahar at the north, and they are coming towards Kabul. So we had to help them get to the Kabul, and we were busy with that. And General Sami, as the commander of the NSOC, we had our commandos and the special forces on that convoy, and we had to support them because JSOC was the uh, commanding of these uh, forces. So we had to help our guys come, although we didn't want them to leave the province, but they left the province and now they are coming. So we had to help them. And the early morning in, uh, in the August 15, we received a call from uh, Wardak, which is like 40 kilometers away from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul that, hey, the Taliban are pushing and attacking us. We want to leave. We want to come to the Kabul. And while we were talking with these commanders, we had an American aircraft flying over war that we conducted the last airstrike in support of Afghan 
Republic, Afghanistan Republic government with the U.S. Air Force on that day. It was in war that six Taliban fighters were killed. And that was the last year strike contacted in support of the Afghan uh, National Security Forces. Then going over, uh, <laughs> now we are listening, we are receiving calls from Kapisa at the north that the the Taliban are pushing, we are leaving pro, uh, like Kapisa. Then I receive another call from Parwan that the Parwan was going running over. The next call I received was from the uh, Bagram airfield. Uh, the Bagram airfield, the prisoners, and the Bagram airfield, the guys left the Bagram airfield. We were trying to send General Sami right now is like, hey, we have to keep background. We have to keep background. And then all of a sudden, I, I find out that the Kabul prison is running over. And then in, when we were trying to send the KKA guys to the Kabul prison, we find out that the prisoners break the prison. And now you have all these 21,000 prisoners, including drug dealers, including ISIS-K, including Taliban, and all these criminals in the streets of Kabul. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention two things, because I, I would have thought that you would mention this, you know, Baff, Bagher Merrifield was evacuated by the U.S. in the dead of night. They did not warn you guys yeah. that they were going to leave. And here you are trying to, you know, and I think Afghan the Nash the Afghan National Army has received a lot of flack in international media for abandoning the country. But the US began that abandonment process, you know, and didn't supply you guys and wasn't doing those things that would have given it's again, it's a morale issue. How do you continue to be present and fighting when you've seen, you know, the US just pulled out out of nowhere from Bath and left this airfield that would have been the perfect place to evacuate from where now you have these fighters on the loose, like you say. And the other thing I wanted to mention for listeners at home is that the ISIS-K fighter who exploded his suicide vest outside of Abbey Gate came out of that prison. You know, this these are consequences of U.S failures that you know now all of this is being heaped on top of your shoulders as you're trying to keep the country that you know you've kept with support from the u.s for all these years so i'd love you to continue just the you know yeah, play I by was play coming, i was coming to this yeah. like to, the, to this bath and to this um u.s withdrawal and keeping us in the dark mm -hmm. so after the Duas agreement, there was some consequences that we were not involved on it and we didn't know that this was going to happen. First of all, yeah, we knew about the 7,000 prisoners that we were pressured, that we were under pressure to release them and we released them. They were out and all of these 7,000 directly went to the front lines and started fighting with us. Then. After that, the withdrawing of the 17,000, the contractors of the contractors who were maintaining our aircrafts, who were maintaining or taking care of our databases and stuff, they were all <laughs> gone. And we didn't know that these people are going. And then they left the background airfield 
And we didn't know it was in the night. They left background airfield and we didn't know. So as you were saying before, the ISSK member fighters who suicided outside the Abbey Gate in August 2021, who ended up killing 117 Afghan, including 13 U.S. soldiers, he came out of the background. And we all know that, that this is how they abandoned the background, how they left the background, and that is what happened. Now we have this 13 uh, U.S. Uh, secure, uh, like Marines died on that day because of uh, like uh, Americans leaving background and leaving those prisoners out in the... Yeah. Absolutely. And then, like you said, they end up in the front lines. They end up all of those, the people who we've had um, Bill Raggio on here who talks about how the Taliban leadership, you know, several Taliban leaders were in prison and then they're released. And and wouldn't you know it, the Taliban leadership of today is the same almost or the sons of the Taliban leaders from 1990s, early 2000s, the same, you know, they're not. It, it was unconscionable. I can't even imagine how it would feel for you going through all of this. And so now you've got these prisoners on the loose. It's, I think that was late in August, on August 14th. So bring us through the final day, August 15th, and what that was like. Yeah, th- this is August 15th that I'm okay. saying all these prisoners are out of the Kabul prison. Okay. And now I'm receiving a call from PD5 of Kabul, like, hey, we are we the taliban are here we run over we are leaving everyone is leaving pd5 was like six kilometers which is almost four miles from the uh, u.s embassy then another call from pd8 which is like three miles from the u.s embassy another call from uh, pd15 pd11 all these police districts are going after each other then we find out that the PD-15, which was uh, outside of the, in the north of uh, Kabul airport, is gone. It was like 500 meters from the Kabul airport at the north of Kabul airport is gone. So the, the Kabul was totally run over. Like when we receive a, when I, when, oh yeah. So General Sami was around like 1.45 to 2, I don't remember the exact time, called and he asked like, hey, can you, che- can you check any Afghan aircraft flying? And can you check all these, uh, the president's aircrafts where they are right now? So we were, as soon as I went to the, the talk and uh, check the, uh, the, trackers of these aircrafts, we find out that the aircrafts has uh, crossed the border. And I told them like, sir, the aircraft just crossed the border of Afghanistan. So I told them, then this came to the news, like five minutes after that call. So we had this Tolo TV that I can say, <laughs> 
like 15 persons responsible for the August 15th <clears throat> because they came to they bring this news and like, hey, the president of Afghanistan just flew out and escaped the country. And this bring a chaos in the city. No one stood up, no one. I could see soldiers, I could see police, I could see a and uh, India's guys taking their uniforms, putting in the ground, putting civilian clothes and not accepting the orders, yeah. just leaving their weapons and going. So by the end of the day, my commander tried to go to the Ministry of Defense and then from there he went to the U.S. Embassy where there was uh, the talk or the tactical operation center led by an American two-star general. He went there and talked to him like he told him like, hey, we can save the city. We can keep the Taliban out of the city. You have this 3,000 soldiers coming here. Give us 1,500 of these soldiers. We're gonna take control of Kabul city. We're gonna keep the Taliban out of the city. We're gonna, we're going to help you evacuate safely. And we, we are going to keep the Taliban out. And the ones who came inside the Kabul, we're going to clear them. So you could get time and you have a safe passage. But unfortunately, this general had told my commander, General Sami, that you don't have any government. And I got my orders from the Pentagon that I have to evacuate the the U.S. citizens from Afghanistan and I am going to do that. You don't have a government and there is not any benefit of helping you guys anymore. How did that feel to know that that was now the state of things, do you think? That was the hard thing I could imagine that uh, one, like your great ally, your great supporter would have told you this. Like, it's really hard to even think about it. Like, your body, the one who was sitting beside you all the time to support you, is now saying that, I'm sorry, I cannot help you because you don't have a government. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine how, I, watching it myself, I think, the moment like that for me was knowing that the Taliban were providing security later at HKIA and these people who had killed people I knew or, you know, people who had talked to me or people who had talked to me who had lost legs in IED attacks that the Taliban are now doing this, you know, it's like, how can, where it, it we lost the logical train at some point and we, we just gave up and it, it continues to boggle my mind that, that any of this happened. Um, you were offered to be evacuated around this point too, and you did not yeah. take that up initially. Yeah, it was so around, around six o'clock in the evening, I have a, one of my American friends. He was a major. He called me like, Hey, Parwani, this is the last call of the mission. 
and wherever you are, you can come to the Kabul airport with your family, and we are going to evacuate you. I told him like, no, this is my country. I'm gonna stay here and defend my country. Thank you for your services and thank you for your call, brother. Safe journey. I told this to my friend, and we stayed there, and our HQ was. Uh, tied to the Kabul airport so we had a gate to get into the Kabul airport so we had a route and uh, uh, I was with my friends in this JSOC HQ and we're talking with Sami and the other people outside and we're asking them what we have to do and what we're going to do and I closed the gate because the Taliban were trying to get in. So I closed the gate for the JSOC and then I tied the security around us. And it was like 37 of us and in this big place and we could not hold it because everyone was tired. Everyone was like lost. And these people were like just harmed, but I believe they were not able to fight because seeing all this uh, long day and hearing all these bad news, hearing that the president has escaped, hearing that your American buddies are not helping you, hearing receiving a call from one of your partners and asking you to leave the country. It's like no one were on that position of fighting. There was like 37 of us. Then we receive a call uh, from Sami, we went inside the Kabul airport, and from there we went inside the CIA camp in the Kabul airport. After that, we left Kabul, and I believe leaving Kabul was the hard point in my life. While I was walking to the aircraft, I was feeling like my soul is coming out of my body and my body is just walking into the aircraft like i could feel that three months prior to this uh, fall of Kabul, my father died uh, my father died and i wasn't that uh, upset for him but when I was, when we lost Afghanistan, I was totally lost. Like walking to the aircraft, I could feel that I am leaving everything behind. I'm just a body walking into the aircraft. Just walked into the aircraft, fly the country, went to Qatar. I only had one pair of uniform. Then from Qatar, we came to the United States. Then from United States here, and we landed in Philly. And then from there, we went to New Mexico. So you were basically back in Helmand, America again. Yeah. New Mexico, you're right near Huachuca. Yeah. yeah, when, when <laughs> at first, when we landed in New Mexico, for a few minutes, I was thinking that I landed in Bastion, in Helmand, because it looked the same. The train, the aircrafts, and everything. So I was like, hey, I believe I'm back in Helmand. 
Yeah. But not quite. What were, so I'd love to get into this. And um, when you arrived, you didn't even get, because some people who came to the airfield might have had a bag with some clothes and maybe some supplies for, you know, their children or whatnot. But you had one thing with you. What was the one thing you had with you? I only had a pair of uniform and that's it. And what was that like for you being, I mean, everything, everything is That is everything. And I have still kept that with myself. I'm going to carry it with myself for the rest of my life. And I'm pretty sure that one day I'm going to wear that the same uniform back in Afghanistan. So I only had that uniform and I had to wash it every day because like during the nighttime, I was washing my uniform and the next day I was wearing. Then a cousin of mine living in LA, he tried to send some uh, clothing and stuff for us, but he couldn't because he was not allowed to come inside the base. Then he sent many to me. So this is funny. Like you are in a situation and you are asking someone for help. There was a, uh, a guy, I asked him, he was an interpreter. I asked him like, hey, I have a friend, a cousin of mine sending me money. Would you please help me? He was like, yeah, I can help you, but you have to pay me some. I was like, okay, I can pay you. Then this guy, my cousin sent 500 bucks for me. And then this guy kept $50 for himself to just bring the money for us. And then the situation in the camp that we were we were in a tent with 400 400 guys in a tent what was that like crazy you can't imagine like being among like 400 male in that room like under one tent mm-hmm. so the days are warm, the nights are cold, and you don't have that much like uh, clothing and stuff to keep yourself warm. And also every day, like for the breakfast or lunch or dinner, you have to stand in a line for like one hour or two. Then when you get into the line and you receive food, you're receiving like mashed potatoes with the green beans and the, white uh, <laughs> that was like I believe was not giving us that much energy that we need and you have to stand in this line for almost one and a half hours to get to that food wow and I want to say because when we were talking the other day before we started recording I, I mentioned this I think there are a lot of people in the US who just think that anyone, because we have a lot of people in the U.S. who come across our southern border because they're looking for opportunity. They're coming here because it's the land of opportunity. It's the American dream. You did not come here looking for the American dream. And you, you know, this is not something that anybody wanted was to stand in line or be in a tent full of 400 people. You guys were escaping an authoritarian regime that took over very quickly in a moment of chaos. You were not here just thinking, oh, I'm going to be rich in America or, oh, I'm going to, you know, 
that's not the impetus of this movement of people. And it's not the reason that people continue to come to the US. It's, it's because you have to escape the Taliban. Because I mean, there's a reason you mentioned uh, people changing into civilian clothes. And when Ghani fled the country, there was a, a picture that went out um, of the previous what the Taliban had done to the previous president when they came through and it was horrifying and you almost can't, you know, blame him. What was going to happen is the Taliban were clearly closing in, you know, and this was going to happen. We've seen it happen with so many ANSF personnel, with so many people who worked for the U S they've been killed by the Taliban. They've been tortured by the Taliban. Um, I've seen where the daughters of people who worked for us have had their hands cut off. It's barbaric. And I just, you know, it's so important, I think, to tell the real stories of, you know, your feelings when you came here. It wasn't a feeling of, oh, look at all this great opportunity that's in front of me. It was, I have fled my home and now I'm here in this, you know, tent, not knowing what the future looks like. So how long were you there in New Mexico and what was the rest of that process like there? So if I wanted to pursue my American dreams, I came to the United States back in 2014. I stayed here for a year. I had the opportunities to stay here. I could get asylum. I have, uh, it was five of us who came to U.S. and went to this, to the military intelligence training. And I was the only one who returned back to Afghanistan. The four other, they stayed. They never go back. They stayed here, they got married here, they became a US citizen, and even one of them became a service member with the same unit. And uh, But we, Afghanistan was the only thing and everything we had, I had. I had to go back, I had to serve my country, and coming back to the United States, we didn't choose to come to the United States. We were forced to come to the United States. We were forced to flee because our government was overrun and the enemies of the people, the enemies of uh, Afghans came to the power. And as you were mentioning before, like the Taliban did whatever they have done in the back in 90s. They are still torturing, they are still killing, and they are still arresting. You can go and check. There is almost 30,000 Afghans in the Taliban prisoners, including women, men, and they, most of these uh, men who are in the prison are former ANDSF soldiers that are arrested by Taliban. You have read the UN report about the Taliban killing the NDSF soldiers. That number is like not 100%. It's like maybe 20% that has been reported. Thousands and thousands of our guys were killed. Our brothers were killed in Kandahar, no one reported that. Our brothers were killed in Badachan, no one reported that. Our brothers were killed everywhere in Tahar, and we only see the reports coming out of 
some specific locations, but they killed our soldiers all over the country. So they were not going to say like, hey, forgive Parwani or forgive these, uh, forgive Sami Sadat or any others. You're forced to flee. And we want to return back to our country. This is our hope. This is our wish. And this is what we are working for. Absolutely. And before you, so I think we're heading towards AUF, but before we get there, I want to talk about something you said the other day about your mental state when you got here, that it was kind of like, it was a depression, you know, as you're trying to figure out what's your next step. You went from being the director of intelligence for JSOC, and now you find yourself in a strange U.S. city. I think you were working on refugee assistance, which is a great thing to be doing. I mean, it's an important task. People needed that. But what was your mental state like as you were going through that process? So uh, when I came out of the camp and started, like, when still being in the camp, I was depressed. I had depression. I couldn't sleep. I can I can still not sleep. I'm not able to sleep during the night. And it's common for the veterans to have this PTSD and have problems like with sleeping, even talking to the people and the staff. But for me, it was worse because we lost the country. We lost the hopes. We lost everything. It was really hard for me. I started uh, working as a case officer with... Uh, uh, agency in Pennsylvania and I was working there and every day I was trying to somehow help these newly arrived Afghan refugees but in my part I had these depressions, anxiety that I was not able to sleep I was not to, able to concentrate and stuff like that That's really tough I mean, I'm, and there's nothing uh, was anyone able to help you with that when you were having that struggle or was, was there no help for that? As <laughs> for Afghans, like, uh, I, I knew this because I've been through and when you were talking with an Afghan and saying like, Hey, I have this mental issue. The only thing that they are thinking is like, Hey, this guy is crazy. So <laughs> this uh, this moral injury, I believe, I did talk with a psychiatrist about it. Uh, when and I see the psychiatrist, uh, we had so many sessions talking with each other, and that helped me. That helped me. But one more thing that helped me a lot was talking to my commander, and when he gives me the hopes of us returning back to the country, that gives me like that bring me back. Like that gave me all the energy that I needed, you know, when talking to him. Although I was going to psychiatrist every week and talking to her for hours, but talking to Sammy on the phone gave me this purpose, you know? Yeah, I think it's the hope that maybe all isn't lost. Maybe the country where you told me the other day, like that's where you want your body to go if you if you die here, like yeah. take me back to Afghan. I mean, that's a, that's a really strong feeling and it, yeah, there now there's hope. So let's talk about that. When did you and Sammy reconnect and were you trying to get him? I mean, there are so many different people spawning efforts to do something 
to to get the Taliban out of power. Um, when did Sami start on that process? So uh, I remember it was the second week of uh, us coming to the United States. It was September 21, 2021, and 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, we were talking, I was texting Sami the night before, and he said, tomorrow we're going to have a group call with our other friends, and we're going to talk what we want to do. So we said, okay. Then uh, after that, the day <coughs> after we called and we were talking and we decided that, hey, we have to defend our country. That is our homeland. Like right now is controlling by Taliban and we are the owners. We are the real owners of Afghanistan. That is our country and we have to go and take it back. It has happened in the past in our country where our empires were defeated, but they came together again and they went and take control of their country. So we started back then, since we all were new here in the United States, some of our friends were in Europe and we were slow, like we were talking, but still, I wasn't like that much sure, like that much comfortable about this, that, hey, this is going to happen. And then I called to Sammy one day when I was like totally lost. And he was like, I was telling him, sir, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? He told me like, Parwani, we are going to start. We are going to start our own front. Just wait for me to come to the United States. When he was in Europe, he went he start this process of getting us all together and working and stuff to get us all together and start like starting a front is not something that easy that you can do it over the night. It takes like several months for uh, for Sami even a year to build this organ uh, the front and I joined. And I have the privilege of being one of the members of this front. So when did you join and what state was the Afghanistan United Front in when you joined? Uh, we are here in Washington, in Virginia, uh, Lorton, Virginia. And it was the beginning of 2023 when Sami first came to the United States and we were i was going back and forward talking to him meeting with him and helping him while he was going around the country talking to the people so it was the beginning of 2023 and what was his so you there are multiple efforts there's obviously the military effort the political effort civil effort what do those entail when what state are they in i guess can we start with the military effort because they obviously the taliban are not going to just say we're done bye thanks for having us like there will have to be a military effort to unseat the taliban correct yeah uh so our goal with the auf is first what we want with the auf what are we stands for mm -hmm. what are our values so the first thing we want to rebuild the afghanistan republic government the second thing, 
we want to reinforce the the constitution of chosen by the people of Afghanistan back in 2004. We want to we want to have a democratic legitimized government internal and legitimized for the world so we can have relations with the world we can have women right we can have freedom of speech we have the equality for the my uh, the minorities of afghanistan and we want to rebuild the or bring back the uh national anthem the all the values of the republic back in afghanistan so the states of our military for affairs i don't i do not want to talk about that right now but we're gonna have first uh, our office here in the united states our political uh, office here in the united states here we are trying to negotiate with have dialogues with the afghans uh, talk with each other bring all the afghans together to reunite under one flag and to reunite under one constitution order to chosen by the people of Afghanistan. Sure. How difficult is it to get people on board with, you know, there are so many different competing groups right now, from what I understand, how is it difficult to get people on board or are people really excited to be part of? So people, <laughs> that, uh, it is difficult because everyone has their own op- uh, opinions like uh, the other friends we're think uh, we're talking about but uh, some afghans like mainly most of afghans are really happy with the auf and uh, every day if i told you that i receive more than 50 to 60 text messages whatsapp calls and People are asking for the membership. People are asking for support. But uh, some of the Afghan politicians who have their own way of thinking are still talking and negotiating and we're talking with them so we can get everyone on board. So it needs some time to talk with the people and it's we can solve it through the dialogues of talking and negotiating with with that right now uh, as we are talking uh, one of our representative is in vienna conference and he was a member of the vienna conference so this is how we want to work with the other uh, fronts we want to be open with the, with everyone because <clears throat> our aim is to go back to our country to clear our country from the world's tourism Right now, as we are talking, 60,000 Al-Qaeda members are in Afghanistan, 16,000 Al-Qaeda members. The Al-Qaeda members, their leaders have a safe passage to come to Afghanistan, go to Iran, and from Iran to Syria, Iraq, and all the way to the Middle East. So we want to clear that from our country. We have IMU, we have TTP, we have Ansar Allah. All these groups are operating in Afghanistan. We want to clear them from Afghanistan. And we all have the same 
the same idea. But we are working towards getting everyone under one roof so we can operate from the same place. Sure. A, a united, like you say, front. And how much of, you talked earlier about the 2014, that split in Afghan politics. Is that still there? Is that something that you have to overcome today or not so much? Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, we have fall apart, especially the politicians. They fall apart, everyone. Like they have divided us based on ethnic, based on the language. We have France right now, active France, that they are only are following ethnic rules. They are fighting because of their ethnics. I don't want to name the front, but there is a front that the, is only fighting for the ethnic. And uh, this is how we have been divided. Sure. And a future for Afghanistan needs to combine all of that. Although, you know, the U.S. tried to do that with these quotas and different things, but I, I don't think that that was a successful way to get, you know, people of every ethnicity to be part of a system. You know, it has to be something where it's almost like, well, the alternative is the Taliban. So are we going to work together or are we going to let the Taliban be in control? And that that's a pretty strong incentive, I'd say, to put aside those differences. I believe uh, right now we are in a different situation, different condition. The politician, the former politicians, they were old, old school. They didn't have the knowledge. Right now, the leadership of all these fronts, France or the young generation of Afghanistan, these young generation, they went to a school, they went to the universities, they know the relations with the world, they know everything. And we have a definition from our enemy right now. This young generation, they know their enemy. Unfortunately, uh, as you were saying, the U.S. tried to build a nation. Unfortunately, they were not successful. And there are some reasons, like uh, the different making the government like bringing the different like ethnics and making this government an effort of like join but unfortunately that didn't, that didn't work like you have someone sitting somewhere is not allowing for the government to send the governor for that province and if you're saying this like, oh, I was a commander and I was a fighter. I have this much troop. I want to do this, 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 and that. Uh, yeah, as you were saying, the alternative uh, for the government was Taliban. You're right, because our politicians, everyone was like only thinking about their own benefits, not the benefit of the country, not the benefit of their people, not the benefit of uh, their nation. They were just thinking their own benefits. All those crafted ben- uh, politicians became billionaires and their followers doesn't have food to eat right now. 
the ones who were supporting them doesn't have food to eat right now. Still, those people are all like, hey, we want to go back. We want to go back. No, you guys are expired. There is this young generation of Afghanistan who knows everything. Yeah. Who knows I, how to fight, who knows how to be a politician, who knows how to run the country. That is the one thing that I have heard from every Afghan who's looking for the future way forward. And it's always the young generation has to be it because the old generation is stained by corruption. They're stained by the failures of the past. They don't have, like you said, that understanding, that education that the young generation has gotten. And I, I think you're right. It, it has to be new. It has to be fresh. Uh, and I'm really hopeful that something can work, you know, to get yeah. Taliban rule away and to give women their rights back because it's, it's horrifying to see what's happening to Afghan women now that they're being dragged back into not even last century, just you know it's it's centuries and centuries ago it's it's very sad um I, what can listeners do if they want to support efforts like auf do you think what do you guys need so we need everything like we are new here we need their supports we need them if someone is a writer to write against all of them and see their actions. If someone has a podcast, bring the Afghan, Afghans to talk. If you know people, like you can talk to your congressmen, tell them like, hey, this is what happening in Afghanistan and this is what we are seeing. The women are totally gone. Girls are not allowed to go to school. It's 2023, 21st century. And we are in a point that I believe no one else in the history was. Yep. So we want these listeners, if they can go and talk to their policymakers, like their congressmen, if they are a writer, right? Write about what you hear. See what's happening in our country. And if you want to help us, you're always welcome <laughs> to our office. You can go to our website and check our website. We need support <clears throat> to go back to our country. And that's my final question for you would be, you know, how is your mental state now that you're part of this effort and that you can see maybe a hopeful glimmer that you can go back to Afghanistan and use all your skills there? Yeah, uh, after we, after I joined the AUF, now I have a purpose that every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do, we have a flag outside our office. So the first thing I do, I open the window and look to this flag and remember the, the promise I made for myself that I want to raise this flag again in Afghanistan. As soon as I see that and I remember that, then I I have a good day on that day and it's it's totally changed now i have a purpose and i'm working for it 
I have a sense that we want to go back to our country and this is our goal and we're working for it. And right now I'm totally fine. And I want for my other veteran brothers to find a purpose on their life. Absolutely. Is that something that you're finding a lot of Afghan veterans are feeling right now? Is that purposelessness and the kind of like, what, what's the next step for me? Yeah, unfortunately, but right now, most of these guys has find out that they have to have a purpose on their life. Like every day, I... As I said, I am receiving calls. General Sami is receiving calls. Our other, my other co-workers here, we are receiving calls. And those are all our ANDSF soldiers who are here in the U.S. or in Europe or somewhere in Asia. They are calling and they are saying like, hey, there is a hope, there is a purpose that we want to, that you guys has created for us and we want to, follow that i'm glad you can be that for them and it's really your story is just really incredible and i'm glad that you know you have that purpose now and it's really amazing to hear about all the things that preceded the withdrawal from your perspective because you had such a really intimate view of it and i just want to thank you so much for coming and sharing all of that here it, it means a lot thank you um, before we close, I want to make the pitch to all of our Afghan listeners that, you know, as always, Michael and I are looking to tell your stories too. So send us an email, send us, uh, you know, a sound document, whatever, a sound file, uh, with anything you want to share about living under the Taliban now, experiencing the withdrawal or, um, experiencing, uh, the period of U.S. presence in Afghanistan and things that went on then, we always want to include your stories in our podcasts. So you can send us anything you like to our show address, which is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. And like I said, Colonel Parwani, thank you for fighting for your country back in Afghanistan and now here from Lorton, Virginia. It's really special to have you. Thank you. Um, for everybody, thank you for sharing your time, supporting the people of Afghanistan. And if you've enjoyed this episode, feel free to make sure you're following us on our YouTube page and enabling the notifications so that you get a little ping whenever our future episodes come out. Um, Tasha Kaur, and I hope to see you again soon.